Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. So when we're children, uh, one of our favorite questions is what? What do we like to ask? Or if you have young children that are around you, what is the question? Yes, I hear Eric uh, mouthing it. It's why, right? Here's a sample of a conversation you may be familiar with if you have a young child or if you are a young child, uh, which I got from an article at kindercare.com. This is how the conversation goes. It's time to brush your teeth. Why? Because we brush our teeth at bedtime. Why? Because we want to have healthy teeth. Why? So we can chew. Why? (laughs) And so on, okay? Before your preschooler can throw out another why, you shut down the line of questioning. You're tired, you don't have easy answers, and you don't want to be at this all night. Your inquisitive three-year-old has become the preschool king of why, and you want to know, well, why? Why? Right? And the article goes on to explain, quote, your child probably uses the word why for the same reason you do, to get information about a world they don't fully understand. Preschoolers have only been in the world a short while. After all, so life experience is minimal, but their wonder and imagination is huge. Here's why. At this age, their brains are developing rapidly and they're trying, really trying to connect the dots in their always new and fascinating world. It's also likely that your preschooler doesn't really want to know all the answers to their queries. Mostly they wanna let you know that something you said and something they observed is interesting. So they're, they're showing curiosity. When they ask why, it means they're curious and they want to explore it further by talking about it with you. They're trying to engage in conversation. Granted, preschoolers don't have a vocabulary necessary to initiate a full-on dialogue, uh, which is why you get the, the kind of repetitive dialogue you see, nor the language comprehension to understand a lengthy answer. But to to them, the ritual of brushing teeth with flavored paste before bed is thought-provoking, right? Um, And they want to talk about it however they can. But of course, you don't always have the answers. And listening to why over and over can be exhausting. Everyone take a deep breath. (sighs) Right? So how can a why-weary parent respond to the interrogation? Instead of putting yourself in the position of the why answerer, try turning the tables. Become the why asker, Ah, ask your preschooler why they think it's a good idea to brush their teeth before bed, right? This is a very Jewish thing, right? You answer a question with a question, so that's good. Open-ended questions allow your child to do the thinking and develop critical thinking skills, which are the foundation of learning. After all, they ask the thought-provoking questions in the first place, so help their noodle ponder the reasons why. If your child is a little older, you may ask if they want to look up the answer with you. Uh, Researching the answer together can leave your child feeling more empowered. A joyful moment is also a potential added bonus to turning the tables on the why asker. Sometimes children will get the real reason why, 
but other times they might settle for a silly answer, right? And their explanation will undoubtedly leave you with in stitches with of laughter for both of you. <laughs> That's so silly. And if you don't know the answer to a question, guess what? It's okay to say you don't know. Admitting that you don't have all the answers all the time can show your child that the, the quest to answer the question why never ends, as we all know. In the end, the more likely reason for all the why questions is that a simple conversation about the ritual of bedtime toothbrushing, what it looks like, feels like, tastes like, and the connection with you, the most important person in their world, are all they really want, unquote. I thought that was really nice. Okay, much as it might be bothersome, it's a good thing that kids are asking why about the rules of the house. In some ways, all of us are what? We're all like children. We're all developing. And I think God wants us to develop as moral learners, to develop our sense of why as we grow. So why ask why, right? Because God wants us to pursue the why, to be mature, to be ethical. If we're just following rules without understanding, we're not developing as moral learners. This week's Torah portion is just after the Ten Commandments and is called Mishpatim, which means what? Rules or ordinances, because it has, dun, 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 a series of rules, right? But the question is, What's the question here? Why, right? Why include this after the 10 commandments? What is God trying to tell us? Last week I spoke about boundaries and my sense of what eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil meant back in Genesis three. If we assume that God is good and he is a good teacher, then let's ask our own why. Why would God put the tree in the garden? Right? I think it was to give us a choice to allow him to teach us. We were not to take the fruit to kind of grab the information, grasp at the information, and uh, to be our own authority, right? It's the, the humans were trying to have the same authority as God and be like him in that. But what were we supposed to do? We were supposed to spend time with the teacher of teachers the rabbi of rabbis. Remember, he is our rabbi, the Lord, and therefore to learn about right and wrong from him because he gets to decide what is good and what is evil. How do we know that? Because he sets about in creation and seven times he says what? He tov, it is good. So we learn from him, his definition of what is tov, what is good to be not like God in his authority, but to be like God in our moral actions, right? Remember, he is the one who established creation and said seven times, he tov. What does that mean? It is good. God is the basis of our moral reasoning, and that makes us students of ethics, right? And a good teacher doesn't give up on his students just because they make a mistake. So when Adam and Eve leave the garden, does that mean their lesson is over? They blew it? I don't think so. His calling and his gifts are irrevocable. They can't be taken back. And so God still expects us to be moral learners and to learn from him. How do we know this? Well, we see it in the Torah, in the rest of the Torah. 
I often quote uh, the Jewish sage Jerry Seinfeld for his wisdom, but I also like to quote Brian Regan, who has a relevant bit to what I'm saying. This is what Brian Regan says about, uh, about a particular rule and a particular uh, public service announcement that he encountered growing up. Quote, <clears throat> my parents raised some good kids. I didn't pursue a life of crime. One reason, I remember that expression when I was a kid, crime does not pay. Crime does not pay? That's why we shouldn't do it? Do you do crime? Oh, well, I love crime. I love almost everything about crime. Crime is fantastic. You don't have to sell me on that side of the equation. The reason, the reason I don't do crime, and I've crunched the numbers, <laughs> it doesn't pay. Sure, if it paid, I'd be doing crime left and right, but crime doesn't pay, so that's why I don't do crime. Another crime mo motto, even more twisted, don't do the crime. How does it go? I'm assuming you're all on mute. Yes, if you can't do the time. I'm intrigued that the motto isn't don't do the crime because that would be wrong, unquote. <laughs> all right, so I think Brian Regan is, has hit on something. Thanks for laughing. <laughs> I'm assuming that you're all laughing out there. Uh, you're just on mute, so I can't hear you. Or the other case is that, you know, I'm just funnier in person and in remote settings, I'm not as funny which I, cause I've been told before that I'm not remotely funny. Oh. Okay. Anyway. Um, so after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden of God's presence and teaching, he still reaches out with a moral compass. How do we know this? When he reaches out to Cain, remember Cain had anger and jealousy arising up against his brother and God steps in. This is what he says. Why are you angry? Why so downcast? If you are doing what is good, tov, shouldn't you hold your head high? And if you don't do what is good, sin is crouching at the door. It wants you, but you can rule over it. Interesting. It wants you, its desire is for you, the sin, right? The, the wild animal inside you, but you can rule over it, okay? Remember, this is way before God gave Israel his Torah. So there is a moral foundation in Genesis before the law, before the rules, to do what? To conquer the animal nature, to do what is tov, according to God, to do what is good, to be fruitful and multiply, to bring the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth, to bring life instead of death, to be our brother's keeper, to be our sister's protector. Wild animals don't ask why, right? They just devour. God is saying, set boundaries on your behavior and thoughts. Why? In order to reflect the image of God more and more. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is referencing in Romans 1. We're all without excuse, he says. Even the nations which did not receive the Torah, they are without excuse. We're all accountable to learn ethics, to learn moral behavior from God. We can reject the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, and we can actually reverse, I think, the decision that Adam and Eve made, made right? We, how do we do that? We ask God to teach us, right? We can reverse their choice. We can, instead of taking, grasping at the fruit and trying to establish and trying to be our own authority, we can trust who? The teacher, 
trust the rabbi of rabbis in order to, to grow in moral character. Here's a Romans 1. This is what Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the good news, since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on trusting, to the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile. For in it is revealed how God makes people righteous in his sight. And from beginning to end, it is through trust, as the Tanakh puts it, but the person who is righteous will live his life by trust. Notice that if they had just trusted the teacher, this is how they would have grown in morality. And this is what God, what, what Paul is saying uh, about Jew and Gentile, right? Even without the Torah, we still have the obligation to learn from God, to reverse the decision that Adam and Eve made. Paul continues, what is revealed is God's anger from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who in their wickedness keep suppressing the truth because what is known about God is plain to them since God has made it plain to them for ever since the creation of the universe, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen because they can be understood from what he has made. Therefore, they have no excuse. So in other words, Paul is saying, you look at the creation, look at the stars, look at the people and the trees and the animals, right? We know God's goodness and his creative power and his love by looking at his creation. And that is with or without the Torah. So we're all accountable to know that there is a God and that he is love. Therefore, they have no excuse because although they know who God is, they do not glorify him as God or thank him. On the contrary, they have become futile in their thinking, and their undiscerning hearts have become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they have become fools. In fact, they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images, like a mortal human being, or like birds, animals, or reptiles. What does that sound like? That sounds like idolatry, right? We're trying to take the creation and worship that. It's all backwards. Here, Paul is linking idolatry and worship of creation with the following of the animal nature. Did you notice that? It's the same thing that Cain was struggling with, uh, that, that sin was crouching at the door like an animal. If you worship the animal nature or if you worship the animals, that's what you become. If you worship God, you become more like him in his goodness. Uh, this is exactly what the this week's Parsha does. It links the the idea of idolatry and uh, worshiping other gods and or avoiding that with uh, moral and social justice right because all the rules are just kind of in there interwoven uh, so it talks about uh, not worshiping other gods and how you treat uh, your neighbor or how you treat your enemy overall we see there is a moral law even before the torah but the idea is this the torah shows us that God continues to reach out and teach us morally to develop us as ethical God reflectors, as moral learners. So I see the Torah as God reaching out after we made the bad decision in Genesis 3. So he's showing Israel his ways, right? He's showing uh, Israel his laws so that uh, we, can, we can reverse what Adam and Eve did and, and try to learn from him. This is one of the processes, I think, of life itself. We learn from God through experience. We learn from God through our teachers uh, that he's given us. Uh, and we uh, learn from God through his revealed Torah, how we ought to be, how we should live. God gave Israel this instruction 
so they would continue to grow in reflecting his goodness. Torah, sometimes translated law, but what does it really mean? Really, it means instruction. That's right. I see you mouthing it, Eric. The Ten Commandments that we spoke of last week are the foundation of God's teaching or revelation. But God builds on that, right? He's bringing it forward. Hence, that's why we have all the rulings or mishpatim that appear in this week's Parsha, right? So let's look at the Ten Commandments and compare it to this week. The Ten Commandments start by teaching us to do what? Honor your father and your mother. The rulings in Exodus 21 through 24, this week's Parsha, prohibit cursing or attacking your parents. So it makes it more specific. The Ten Commandments tell us to have no other gods but Hashem. The rulings this week prohibit sorcery, which is trying to contact or control other spiritual forces. And it prohibits naming other gods on, even on our lips, right? Even saying them, right? So it's taking the, the moral code in the Ten Commandments and developing it this week. The Ten Commandments tells us, don't steal, thou shalt not steal, right? But we want to know about the why. We want to learn about the, the consequences of this. So this week's rulings describe restitution for stealing. And it says that the thief has to pay back double. So it expands what was going on last week. So we see how the Torah, as it continues, explains the why behind the laws and brings them into further clarity and depth. Then there are moral extensions of love and honoring others, which are maybe implied in the Ten Commandments, but it's really a kind of underneath the Ten Commandments. Uh, and they're furthering the Torah as a whole, God's moral vision for humanity and especially for Israel. Uh, this involves doing what? What are we supposed to do? Take care of the poor and the vulnerable and take care of our enemies, right? <laughs> this is in the Torah. It's in this week's Parsha. Here's, uh, here's some snippets. Exodus 22, starting in verse 24. If you loan money to one of my people who is poor, you are not to deal with him as you would a creditor. You are not to charge him interest. If you take your no neighbor's coat as collateral, you are to restore it to him by sundown because it is his only garment. He needs it to wrap his body. What else does he have in with which to sleep? Moreover, if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am compassionate. You can, you can really feel the moral weight behind this. It's not just a, like thou shalt not or do this or don't do that, right? It's, it's developing the compassion of Israel. So they, they're thinking about the poor. Like, yeah, if you take his coat, he's going to be shivering. He's going to be, he's going to be without. That's no good. Check out Exodus uh, 23, starting in verse 4. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey straying, you must do what? What do you think we have to do? Just ignore it? <laughs> no, you return it to him. If you see the donkey which belongs to someone who hates you, lying down helpless under its load, you are not to pass him by, but to go and help him free it. Wow, right? Try to find that in another ancient law code, like the code of Hammurabi, right? Treating your enemy with kindness. You're not going to find it. Why do we do this? Because God is this way. God provides for the just and the unjust. God is kind and provides for those who aren't kind to him, right? And we're made in his image. So we're supposed to follow that moral vision. Here's a ruling from this week's Parsha that moves us from blind rule followers into the why. 
Exodus 23, verse 9. You are not to oppress a foreigner, for you know how a foreigner feels. You know his heart since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Here, the Torah appeals to our common story. You were oppressed. You were enslaved in Egypt. You were marginalized. You were rejected and you were mistreated. So remember that God rescued you in order for you to be different than your oppressors. This goes beyond a list of like do's or don'ts. What does it go to? It goes to compassion, empathy, and it goes to the breaking of oppressive cycles. I mentioned this in a sermon before from the Bema, but our congregation is full of individuals who have broken these oppressive cycles in their families, who maybe have experienced in their past or in their childhood rejection or a lack of compassion, but they themselves are full of compassion for the vulnerable. Because why? They know what it's like and they have compassion, they have empathy. It is one of our strengths. So I thank God for you all. Baruch Hashem. One of the most well-known parts of this week's Torah portion is the people's response to the covenant promise after receiving the commandments and the rulings. Uh, this is in Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it aloud so that the people could hear. And they responded, everything that Adonai has spoken, na'aseh v'nishma. Naase venishma. What does that mean? Naase comes from ose, right? Which is to do. So we will do it. And venishma comes from the word shema, means we will hear or we will obey or we will understand, right? The second is more interesting that, that shema verb, we will hear it, we will understand it, we will obey it. We will absorb it. The rabbis here also notice the order. What is, it, what, are the, what is Israel saying? We will do it. We'll do the commandments. And as we're doing it, we will grow in doing it. We will grow to understand the why. We will grow to understand the moral ethic underneath the text and how the commandments protect us against the paganism and idolatry of the surrounding nations, right? That's what we're supposed to, to see underneath it how the Torah as a whole, or even or especially the stories, even the stories in Genesis, teaches us how to be our brother's keeper and how to avoid the animal instinct, the, the wild animal in favor of forgiveness and compassion. The narrative of God bringing us out of the slavery in Egypt should compel us to be compassionate for the other. And this is the moral underpinning of the Torah. Uh, whoever is not like us, we should show compassion to them. Yeshua the Messiah brings the moral vision of Torah even further, which is not a surprise to us, right? Because he is the living Torah. He continues to teach the essential meaning behind the commandments. The, the text that has eye for an eye, uh, the very famous one, that's in this week's portion, right? And here's how Yeshua brings it forward in Matthew 5, which is uh, often called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, or it could be translated the Torah, Torah from the Mount. Uh, this is uh, starting in Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that our fathers were told, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. 
And if a soldier forces you to carry his pack for him one mile, carry it for two. And when someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something from you, lend it to him. It's like a further lesson on the moral ethic underneath the Torah. It existed before the Torah was given, when God advised Cain. It continued through the giving of the Torah. God continued to teach us. It was furthered by the additional rulings in this week's Parsha. And then it was carried even further by Messiah Yeshua teaching the Torah. And it continues even till today, right? What are we doing? We're growing to be moral learners. So let us continue to ask and seek the why of following God, that we take time not just to check boxes, but to check our character, to build on the ethics of humility, forgiveness, compassion, and restoration that God continues to teach us that we might build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, which he calls what? Tov. He said it was Tov Me'od, very good. So let's seek the why of the Torah and let's honor God with ethical action as moral learners. Shabbat Shalom, everyone.